right, Julie. Well, welcome back. Welcome back. It's been a little while since we've had a, a podcast episode. It has indeed, but I think we've got a good one for today. Something a little bit different. Ah, awesome. You might say that our podcast episodes have been a little discontinuous in their release. I think I think that they absolutely have. We are the <laughs> archetypal example of discontinuity theory. <laughs> that was our strategy the whole time. Listeners. Absolutely. We've just been building up to this one episode, episode eight, discontinuities. Well, welcome to the podcast. My name is Connor. My name is Julie, and we are grad students at UNL. Uh, I study soil microbial ecology. And I study ecological resilience and our legal framework. Yeah. Welcome to it. Welcome to it. So just a little roadmap for this episode. I'm going to do a brief concept introduction of our discontinuity topic. Connor is going to do the foundational paper. I'm going to jump in with a bit of a more modern paper, some application. And then, of course, we have resilience in the news to close it out. Always a classic. Always a classic. Always fun. There might be a little bit of space in there today, which is my current passion for this section. Gotta love space. Gotta love space. All right, should we dive into it? Let's do it. All right. So today we're talking about discontinuities, discontinuity theory, which is something that is sort of a an ecological method, method of study ecology in its own right that ties really nicely into resilience and was developed by a lot of the same sort of um, founders and pioneers of ecological resilience that we've been talking about sort of throughout these episodes or have who have been the authors, a lot of papers that we discuss. So for this concept introduction, I'm leaning pretty heavily on Paper from 2014, Discontinuities, Cross-Scale Patterns in the Organization of Ecosystems by Nash et al. Um, And so discontinuities, discontinuity theory grows out of hierarchy theory, uh, which we talked about really extensively in panarchy. So this theory relates Mm -hmm. pretty heavily to panarchy, which builds upon alternative stable states, which builds upon ecological resilience. You can sort of see where we're going here. Wait, this stuff builds (laughs) off it? It's all connected, just like nature. (laughs) So they say that there's growing evidence from nature and ecological modeling suggesting that ecosystem structure and dynamics are dominated by the influence of a small set of plant, animal, and abiotic or non-living processes operating at specific temporal um, periodicities and spatial scales forming a hierarchy. Blah, blah, blah. It's all very fancy. Basically, ecosystem structure and function are influenced by small sets of plants, animals, and the rest of the world that is not living, um, operating at different scales and, and you know, heterogeneity patterns like we've been talking about, forming this sort of panarchy, hierarchy. These are all concepts that we've been covering a little bit. So each level in this nested hierarchy of variables or panarchy is controlled by processes sufficiently different in speed and size to introduce discontinuities in distribution and pattern of ecosystem attributes such as habitat structure and resource availability. So that's really, you know, nested variables controlled by processes sufficiently different in speed and size. That's really that adaptive cycle and panarchy thing that we've been talking about. Yeah, Um, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So basically this takes the panarchy idea of looking at, you know, an ecosystem or the globe and sort of the nested systems within... Uh, you know, one spatial scale and at spatial scales, higher and lower and temporal scales, and says that these differences in each of these nested systems influences, I'll use body size as an example, because that's the example that's always used, influences 
basically what size the animals grow to at each of those little nested panarchies, each of those little distinct scales. So one example that this paper uses is they talk about a coral reef. And they say that there's, you know, of course, as we've talked about before, you can define a system in many ways. But they say that within uh, the coral reef system, you've sort of got these distinct spatial scales, spatial hierarchies. You've got sort of the spatial scale of a single branch of a piece of coral, of a single colony of a piece of coral, or colony of coral, a multi-colony system of many coral colonies interacting, a whole reef system is the next one up, and finally a multi-reef system. So the many, you know, many a system of many reefs that interact with one another in some way, exchange nutrients and animals and whatever. Each of these five, in this case, spatial scales, is pretty distinct from the one above it. And that leads to the evolution of distinct body size categories for the fish that live within these five uh, sort of spatial scale systems in this coral reef. At the branch scale, you've got little fish that, you know, live pretty happily in the confines of a single branch of coral. Um, Their nutrient... You know, the nutrients that are available to them there, the spatial scale of the branch, you know, they have to be small enough to hide in there and avoid their predators, whatever. These sort of physical constraints have led to the evolution of fish of a particular body size, maybe many species at that particular body size, living at the branch scale of a coral reef. Although on the other side, you have multi-reef fish. You have fish that have evolved to, you know, move from one reef to the next, um, you know, maybe grazing things between. That's the niche that they filled. And consequently, their body size is much larger. And so the theory behind this, um, well, the idea behind this theory is that you have, if you have five distinct scales in a particular ecosystem, you might have sort of five distinct categories of, in this case, body size, the animals that live there with discontinuities between them. Might have a bunch of fish that are roughly one centimeter long, a bunch of fish that are roughly three centimeters long, a bunch of fish that are roughly five centimeters long, and those two centimeter discontinuities between them. Okay, sure. Yeah. So you would expect to see little or no species of fish at those in those right. gaps. Right. Right. Because you know this gets into evolution and blah 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 blah. But there are resources available at certain scales. Therefore, the sort of animal niche evolution fills in at that scale as well, which is interesting. It says that this paper says that the life history, behavioral and morphological attributes of animals may adapt to the discontinuous, dis- sorry, I cannot pronounce this word, to the discontinuous landscape pattern as this pattern reflects opportunities for shelter, food and resources. So this is kind of a nice blending of ecology and evolution, really. Yeah. Yeah. So some other common examples include, as I mentioned, aquatic and terrestrial animal body sizes. That's where a lot of the early work was. Uh, species abundances and biomass, richness, animal, you know, the, the size of the ranges that they occupy, um, and other occupancy patterns. So, yeah. This paper sort of defines a few crucial terms. They include some resilience things in there, which I won't go into because you guys are experts out of this by this point. But I think there are three that eight are Eight episodes in. Eight episodes <laughs> in. A couple of interviews in there. You guys are experts. So, but there's three crucial terms I just sort of want to, you know, hammer in. The first is aggregation. These are clusters of the measurements in the distribution of a variable. So in what we were talking about, it would be the cluster of one centimeter fish, the cluster of three centimeter fish, 
and the cluster of five centimeter fish. Each one of those would be an aggregation. As you know, maybe there's five species of fish that are roughly one centimeter long in that, you know, at that branch scale, something like that. So in body size distribution, they say an aggregation is a cluster of species that are of similar size, synonymous with lump or mode. Those are other words you can use. And they're driven by that underlying pattern of resource availability that we talked about, food, shelter, other resources, habitat structure. Um, and aggregation is separated from its neighbor by our next uh, term, by discontinuity. So discontinuity is a break in the distribution of a variable. This is that two centimeter gap or what you know, whatever length gap that we were talking about between our aggregations of fish body sizes. So the um, in the body size distribution, it's that region between distribution with no species. It's synonymous with the word gap um, and it separates those aggregations that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Finally, just to bring it all together, we have discontinuous distribution. The distribution of a variable where measurements are clustered in groups along the axes, and the clusters are separated from others by gaps or by those discontinuities. For example, in this body mass distribution we're talking about, where species are of similar size, they're clustered in aggregations, separated from species of different sizes by gaps of discontinuities in body mass. There's a lot of methods aimed at evaluating these distributions, and that's gonna be a focus of you know some of our work today, and that's just a, uh, pretty big focus of the literature these days is how do we assess discontinuities. Finally, before we move into the paper section of the podcast, I just want to make sure that I hammer home a little bit how this ties into resilience theory, why we're talking about mm. it. It's pretty obvious that it yeah. you know builds out of, it's a, it's a nice realistic example of, you can see where panarchy influences, you know, the structure, function, evolution, et cetera, of ecosystems. But uh, this theory is also of relevance to ecological resilience as, you know, this is something that Connor is going to cover more, but Holling, sort of the founder of this field, postulated that functional diversity within body mass aggregations and redundancy of functional groups across body mass aggregations or scales support system resilience. Basically, that functional diversity is the idea that different animals you know, even if they're pretty similar to one another, living in the same place, they compete with mm -hmm. each other a little bit, whatever, they might do the same function for the environment. Let's say uh, they distribute seeds for plants that need to grow in this area. Functional diversity is the idea that if you have a bunch of animals doing that same task for the environment, it increases the resilience of that location because that means if one of those species has a terrible plague, which is a little bit of an on-the-nose <laughs> example in this case, but if there's a terrible plague and it kills off all that species in that area, there are other species that can pick up the slack there and will continue distributing seeds in that environment. The function that those species were providing is conserved, is resilient. That diversity builds resilience. So, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that makes sense. Uh, makes yeah. sense, particularly in the context of something like invasive species, right? Absolutely. Uh, where one particular species may be grossly impacted by this new invasive species. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, something like a disease is a perfect example of that. And other species are not as impacted. And so they can maintain the, the mm -hmm. function of that particular niche in the ecological system. Yeah. And in like a, in like an office setting, which is entirely different, but think about when, if you're the only person at your company who can do this one crucial task for the company, 
and then you, you know, need to take a vacation or you have a cold or something, you can't have it where the company falls apart if you're not able to come in and do that task. There has to be redundancy built into the organization where multiple people know how to do that skill. And so nothing is riding on one <laughs> one human or, or, you know, in the ecology example, one species. Yeah, sure. One person. Yeah. But you're uh, never going to get fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's extremely true. That's fantastic job security. But then you also never rest. So Also true. Yeah. And so he goes on to say that the roles that species play in the distribution of the functional attributes of these species within and across scales may strengthen the resilience of ecological systems. And so this theory and its, its sort of obvious application has also led to uh, the development of a lot of quantitative methods, which we'll go into a little bit. But probably have more relevance to people who, you know, will be using these analyses in their in their work or in their dissertations. But evaluating, they, the Nash paper says, evaluating and analyzing data for discontinuous patterns has two primary uses. First, it's an independent method for identifying intrinsic scales of pattern and process in ecosystems. We've been talking so much in our scale and heterogeneity episodes about how, you know, you sort of set the scale. It can be really subjective. It depends on what you want you know, out of your study, something like that. Uh, This provides a way more objective view of what some of the distinct habitat scales might be in an ecosystem. Because you can clearly, you know, if there's clear discontinuities and aggregations of, you know, body size or whatever it might be, there might be some, some more intrinsic objective scales of pattern and process in the ecosystem that you're looking at. Second, it provides a platform from which to assess the distribution of key traits or processes within and across the scale of any given system. It gives you an idea of what scales ecosystem services might be happening at, at what scales certain animals are influencing their environment, things like that. Finally, it might lead to early detection of regime shifts. So that's getting back to the alternative stable state, tipping point ideas we've talked about. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Changes in the number or location of discontinuities within a habitat or body size or whatever it is that you've been monitoring uh, over time would indicate changes in the dominant processes driving these discontinu- discontinuous patterns. Basically, if you've been studying one you know, marine ecosystem for decades and you pretty well know the the discontinuous body size classes, the aggregates, what they've been, uh, and then all of a sudden things start to shift and get weird, there might be something happening in your ecosystem that you need to uh, look into. The other, there's some, this work ties into ideas like cross-scale resilience and all these other things we won't go into. So just want to throw that out there if anyone wants to give it a Google. But I think that's all for my introduction. And we're going to move into Connor's classic foundational paper for this field. Awesome. Well, great introduction, Julie. Thank you. And as you mentioned before, we have heard quite a bit on this subject from a certain Dr. C.S. Halling. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to revisit another one of his papers. This one is Cross-Scale Morphology, Geometry, and Dynamics of Ecosystems. This is a Halling paper from 1992, a little more than 15, yeah, 15 years or so since the 1977 classic paper where he coined ecological resilience as a phrase we visited before. (laughs) So in this paper, Dr. Holling talks about testing something like discontinuity theory in the context of animal size and ecosystems, something that you did a really good job talking about in the intro uh, with 
the, the coral reef example. His hypothesis is that certain biotic and abiotic, so living and non-living structures and, and processes, naturally create that discontinuous distribution for spatial structures among animals. So this gets into the creating those clusters, those clumps of animal sizes. And when we see those clumps arise, we see different scales at which these different species of animals are operating, which again is something that you mentioned in the introduction. But I would like to just talk about what that that means, or maybe provide mm -hmm. a, a visual example of, of how we would plot that for a second, just uh, for, for the sake of listeners who maybe it's been a while since you've done a math class, a stats class, anything like that. Picture in your mind a graph with a smooth curve. This is technically a continuous distribution. Uh, we, we visualize this line as actually representing lots of little dots, little data points that we can plot on a graph. And we show this as a line because they connect to each other consecutively. They're, they're continuous, they're, they're uniform. Holling is saying that we don't see a, a continuous distribution in animal sizes. The animals don't, animal body mass size doesn't proceed sequen uh, sequentially. Mm -hmm. There isn't an animal to fill every potential space if we were to take something like body mass size and, and plot it on a graph. Instead, Animals tend to, as you mentioned, Julie, clump together where we see a bunch of animals at similar sizes at certain scales with no or maybe a few animals present at other scales. This creates clusters and then gaps between those clusters. And as a result, we don't get that smooth curve of consecutive dots. There, there, there's the clumps. There's right. gaps between the clumps. Our, our distribution of animals on our graph is not continuous or more accurately, it's discontinuous. Mm -hmm. That's where we get that discontinuity. So as a result, we should see more animals around the size of a rabbit or a squirrel, and then maybe a gap, and then around the size of a fox or a bobcat, and then there'd be another gap, so on and so forth. Right? Obviously, that's a really gross oversimplification. You can find lots of examples of different sizes of animals, but that's the general idea of it. So Howling tests this hypothesis by assessing birds and mammals from boreal forests and shortgrass prairies. And he also makes some comparisons with animals in an open ocean environment. So there's three landscapes, or, or in one case, more of a waterscape, right, <laughs> going on being tested here in this paper. He also provides a series of alternative hypotheses that could potentially account for these different variations that we see, you know, whether it's historical factors or uh, factors relating to uh, the, the evolution of the particular am animal as sort of a, a separate entity. And what he ultimately finds is that these alternative hypotheses can be eliminated and discontinuity theory can't be eliminated. And so he he finds in favor of discontinuity theory. He finds similarities between the clumps of animal sizes in the boreal forest, as well as the short grass prairie environments, although they aren't identical. On the other hand, the clumps between the two landscapes and the more open ocean waterscape, for lack of a better term, are very different. And what this means is that all three of these different environments can possess discontinuities. So we, we, we see the theory in place we see these clusters among the different body mass sizes, and we see through these clusters the different scales at which ecological processes are operating. But 
these different processes are different and these structures are different depending on the landscape that you're looking at. So all three environments possess discontinuities, but because of differences in those biotic and abiotic factors that I mentioned earlier, uh, that means that the location of the discontinuities, the location of those clumps, those are different and will uh, be in different positions on our graph, depending on which of the three environments we're looking at. And as we might expect, just thinking about it logically, the two landscape environments are more similar to each other than the ocean environment, because the, the processes and the structures influencing where those body mass uh, sizes for the different animal species, where they congregate, where they clump together, those processes and structures are more similar to each other in a boreal forest as compared to a uh, short grass prairie right. as opposed to the open ocean right where we see some very different processes and structures at play yeah this gives us such a yeah this gives us such a great it's even better justification for the importance of knowing your ecosystem right and knowing whatever it is that you're studying this is so location dependent which is just you know a fun ecology thing yeah Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's very important to think about this in the context of tailoring your your research and mm -hmm. tailoring your approach to whatever particular landscape you're studying, right? Good food for thought. Absolutely. Holling also describes how he thinks discontinuity theory and, and all of the research that he packs into this paper, how it can be used to help land and, and natural resources managers think about cross-scale linkages and their management practices. I mentioned at the very beginning of this uh, little discussion on the paper that uh, the the first words in the title of the paper are cross-scale, right? Mm, cross-scale mm -hmm. morphology, geometry, and dynamics. Well, we haven't talked too much about the cross-scale linkages, but Holling thinks they're very important in applying management practices. You mentioned in the introduction, Julie, that cross-scale features heavily in theories like panarchy. And panarchy fundamentally is the idea that we have a, a set of nested adaptive cycles, right? And we see cross-scale linkages among these different adaptive cycles operating at different scales. Well, this is where we see cross-scale come, the idea of cross-scale linkages come into its own in discontinuity theory and, and why discontinuity theory kind of fits into all this other resilience theory stuff that we've been talking about on the podcast. Mm -hmm. What what managers can do, according to Holling, is leverage an understanding of, of how ecosystem hierarchy, which is itself a, a concept that's deeply embedded in discontinuity theory, we can use that to understand what processes, what structures impact scales in the landscape. Taking those those body mass sizes that we, we keep using as our example, say we want to manage for a particular species or, or maybe at a particular scale. We can look at our, our graph. We can look at what species are clumped at what particular scales on the graph, separated by these discontinuities. We can say, okay, well, we want to have an effect on pulling something out of the air here, deer population. So what animals, what processes, uh, what structures in our ecosystem do we find at this particular scale that could help us with our management of the deer population? So think of it almost as um, pulling a lever or, or plucking a string to 
to try and precisely and accurately uh, have an effect on your ecosystem that you can you can better predict what's going to happen right as opposed to kind of blindly plucking at different swing strings or, or pulling different levers and trying to figure out from there um, what what the impact's going to be and essentially hoping for the best mm-hmm. so effectively managers can better predict what effects uh, changes to processes and structures will have on the ec- ecosystem whether whether that's the managers themselves trying to make desirable changes to those ecosystems, or whether that's something that's naturally occurring in the environment. Returning to that invasive species example that we discussed at the in the introduction, maybe that could be uh, a way to predict what's going to happen at the uh, scale of the deer population, or perhaps a smaller scale or a larger scale, or looking at how one of those smaller or larger scales will, will impact the scale that we, we want to manage for. Hauling also has a few other management conclusions as well, talking about uh, some similar themes regarding prediction, regarding how we can potentially use uh, our, our understanding of how certain processes wield a very outsized influence over certain scales, applying things like temporal structure as well as spatial scale structure, how these different things can be uh, used for management. And... Uh, I encourage you to check out the paper if you're in, if interested in this, as well as a lot of the methodology, uh, because he does go into a good amount of detail about the methodology for, for how we study these different animals, particularly mammals and birds, for, for our three different environments that he compared. Um, However, the, por- the, the, the paper is a good 40 pages long or so, so it's... Uh, <sighs> It's about the length of a, you know, a good law review article. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, we could spend all day just talking about this particular article, but uh, it is a good read. So I I encourage you, if you're interested in some of this foundational elements that later papers would really latch onto, this is a a good place to start. Fantastic. Yeah. Every, uh, every paper that I looked at for this topic, they all went right back to this 1992 paper. This is the the starting point and, you know, such a powerhouse author in this field. So it was great to hear Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So for the modern paper, I am jumping right on board with those management themes that you had going on there at the end to discuss a paper in the journal Applied Ecology called Management Applications of Discontinuity Theory. It's by Angler et al. in 2015. So, you know, As the title would suggest, this paper really just provides a window into how the, you know, development of discontinuity theory over time um, is not just a, you know, abstract mathematical thing or or, or a neat quirk of ecosystems that, you know, oh, look, you know, body size clusters, that sort of thing. This is, paper is really like, this is relevant to everyone's, you know, every conservationist and ecologist land management goals. And we should, you know think about that. So they open up with the human dominion of the world's ecosystems has resulted in a biodiversity crisis with unprecedented species extinctions, threatening ecosystems and the provisioning of ecosystem services upon which humanity relies. So they are holding no punches (laughs) and why they think this is important. Go big or go home. Go big or go home. And I mean, and they're right. It's, (laughs) it's, you got to use everything in your tool belt to tackle some of the modern issues that we've got going on. So 
Yeah, they say that scientists and natural resource managers have to strategically allocate their limited resources for research, for management, for conservation. Robust tools are needed to characterize cause and effect relationship between stressors and ecological responses. These tools reduce uncertainties, allow effective management to prevent ecosystems from tipping into undesirable alternative stable states, and facilitate the restoration of systems currently in undesired or degraded states. A major challenge for management is how to assess and manage for variability in the structure and function of an ecosystem, while still ensuring system integrity that it remains the alternative stable, the stable state that you want it to. Um, and this level of system, you know, the system level management requires an understanding of the feedbacks going on in an ecosystem, of scale, of basically just what's happening, at what scale it's happening, and are there changes to the way that it's currently been operating can you detect those regime shifts as we spoke about oh yeah sure so i won't i won't go into a recap of the theory or any of that we've already done that you know heavily in this podcast but this is another paper with a really nice exploration of discontinuities and discontinuity theory if you'd like a you know another modern um easy to read recap so basically Mm -hmm. the core of this paper is that they provide maybe five or so examples of how discontinuities and discontinuity theory can be applied for management. They are quantifying resilience, detecting discontinuities and identifying scales, detecting regime changes, extinction and invasion risk, population and community variability, and finally, identification of monitoring targets. So these are our sort of, you know, five uh, examples that they provide. So starting with the first one, quantifying resilience, this relates to other ideas in ecology that you know we've mentioned in brief, but won't go into, cross-scale resilience, all this sort of deal. Um, and it's based on the notion that ecological functions and processes and ultimately ecological resilience depend on the distribution and diversity of functional traits, like we talked about functional resilience, functional diversity, um, including effect and response traits, species within and across all spatiotemporal scales within a ecosystem. Uh, And yeah, and so several aspects of biodiversity are super relevant for understanding this model, functional redundancy, response diversity, um, and just that basic underlying understanding of scale that we've been speaking about. So within ecological sciences, many researchers have been studying, you know, functional community, what what functions, what ecosystem services um, that the community provides in connection with Hollings discontinuity hypotheses to quantify resilience in these terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems. And so one example of this that they provide of this sort of quantifying resilience uh, utilizing discontinuity theory is a study that evaluated the impact of the hypothetical loss of all threatened and endangered grassland birds to cross-scale resilience. Um, And this this particular paper found that substantial losses could be absorbed without the loss of functionality within or across scales. However, there were clear thresholds that they detected of loss after which system resilience would be so reduced that any further losses would eliminate critical functional redundancy across scales and functional diversity within scales. So basically, you know, they, they have this big list of birds that are at risk of going extinct. And, you know, they run some ecological models that are like, what would happen if just all of these disappeared? You know, and they're coming to that with the knowledge of discontinuity theory with sort of body gap sizes where you know where are what scale are each of these birds operating at within the ecosystem what scale are they Mm. influencing stuff like that what function do they provide to the ecosystem um and then what happens if you start killing them off in this hypothetical model 
And, you know, they find that you, a lot of them could, you know, leave or die or what have you. And you would still have some of that function or all that functionality or most of it preserved within the ecosystem because of the functional redundancy we've been speaking about. Other birds would pick up the slack, basically. But they're also okay. able to detect using this model that there are thresholds after which if you just murdered all of these birds, uh, there you would lose that function, perhaps because maybe multiple birds are at, you know, that are endangered are at the same body size class, body size class and have the same function within the ecosystem. And if you lost all of those, maybe that function would just no longer be operating at that scale within the ecosystem. So sure. yeah, great example of quantifying resilience. Um, that paper that they quote is a Sunstrom, Allen and Barashivi uh, paper from 2012. Uh, second, we have detecting discontinuities and identifying scale. So this, yeah, again, this is more that example of we've been talking about scale as something very subjective, but what if scale was a bit more objective or intrinsic and you could, or, you know, you could see some of the, some clear scale categories within the ecosystem. So it says explicit consideration of intact and affected scales and analyses of global change provides opportunities to tailor more specific management plans. For instance, management can be matched to target the reinforcement of critical ecological functions at a particular scale, you know, if you know that scale is there, um, that are relatively free from stress to buffer against potential loss of function at affected scales, fostering ecosystem resilience. So while such an approach is theoretically really appealing, in practice, the selection of scales and ecological research is often so arbitrary. And then they go on to say that rather than arbitrarily assigning scales, um, you know, or assuming what the most critical scales are, you know, even based on, you know, solid theory, scales of analyses can be objectively identified through discontinuity analyses. And this provides a critical tool for this objective, you know, assessment. And then you can actually, instead of just going, oh, we think this is where we should be targeting or based on these other things we're seeing, this is most likely where we need to start targeting management applications. This provides more concrete um, examples of what some of the scales in the ecosystem are, at least for you to choose from then. <laughs> yeah, sure. Less yeah. abstract. Uh, Less abstract, yeah. just another tool in the tool belt, basically. It doesn't replace yeah. you know, all your other options, but provides a little bit more objectivity in a field that can be a little bit subjective at times. So third, we have regime shifts. This was something I talked about in the intro, so I won't harp on it too long. But, uh, you know, drivers of change, such as temperature, nutrient loading, fishing, grazing, blah, 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 can exceed critical values or a threshold or a tipping point um, in an ecosystem, generating that abrupt and unexpected shifts in ecosystem structure, processes, feedback, these tipping points, these alternative stable states that we've talked about, these regime shifts. So these shifts can obviously have huge impacts for human well-being, societal development, ecosystem services, you know, the functions that our world provides and our livelihood. Awesome. We need to know about regime changes. So this regime shift concept, what how they talk about in this paper is basically that it hasn't lived up to its potential in all uh, case studies, but in other ones it really has noted a potential tipping point or bifurcation point. Um, and so there's still a lot of work to be done here. One of the ones that they detected as, no, or noted as a, not a failure, but it didn't, the discontinuity analysis did not sort of note a distinct tipping point in the way that they would have liked it to. They hypothesized that that regime shift was actually a bit of a slow erosion of one regime before it stabilized into a new regime. There wasn't this 
you know, uh, one moment, one regime to the next sort of distinct tipping point. Um, and that same analysis uncovered sort of an unknown tipping point uh, in this ecosystem that the, you know, they hadn't detected prior. So it might work for really distinct shifts and maybe not for sort of slower, um, you know, slow erosions of, of a regime. So that's something that's interesting to note. Basically, there's just a lot to be developed in this particular application that would be so important. They say it's still very limited and that ecological dynamics operating at the time scales from centuries to millennia might seem really intangible for today's managers and policymakers, but you know, still trying to figure out how to apply this analysis to recognize these transitional dynamics and ecosystems um, per- will provide managers an opportunity to develop interventions ahead of time. Hmm. But it still is very much in development and might only be suitable for detecting certain regime shifts rather than all. Again, something to be added to the toolbox. Yeah, sure. Trying to take that more proactive approach. Yes. And if, you, if you're if you already um, keeping tabs on a particular ecosystem, why not throw this into your toolbox? Because you mm-hmm. never know what might pop up. So fourth, we have uh, as another application of this theory in management is the ability to sort of monitor extinction and invasion risk, population and community variability. So discontinuity theory has provided a more mechanistic understanding of ecological phenomena, um, you know, and that includes such sort of uh, instances that are of particular relevance for community ecology, population ecology, and that includes invasions, extinctions, migrations, nomadism. Empirical analyses have shown that the locations of species within body mass aggregations is not random. We were talking about that with discontinuities. Uh, And also, it's not random with regard to these particular ecological phenomena. So we have a couple of examples here that have the sort of common thread of discontinuity research refining ecological theory and some of these sort of core ecological tenets. Uh, which is really cool. So they have an example here of bird and mammal species and some other animals with body masses that were located them close that were sort of, so if, if when we're talking about these discontinuities, we're talking about the aggregations within discontinuities. One thing I mentioned was like, you know, that grouping of three centimeter fish. Well, not all of the species within that aggregation are going to be three centimeters exactly. Some are going to be three centimeters and some are going to, you know, we're talking about averages or whatever, are going to be more on the outside of that cluster. Three and a half centimeters, you know, 2.5 centimeters, whatever. The aggregation does have a range. And basically, a lot of discontinuity analyses suggest that those species, again, this body mass example, that are more on the outside of that aggregation, the 3.5 and the 2.5 compared to the three centimeter, are more likely to be threatened or endangered. In this case, they were looking at the Florida Everglades, Florida Everglades Mm. in the USA. So this extinction risk arises because of a greater variability and increased unpredictability of resource availability closer to those discontinuities. So the reason that, that that aggregate formed that there was resource availability, habitat availability, et cetera, for you know, animals with body sizes approximately three centimeters. But the more you start to deviate from that, you know, the center of that aggregate, perhaps there's not enough food for you, or you're a little too small to compete with the other, you know, animals within that body size class or something like that. You get here 
at greater risk of extinction, basically. The, the, yeah, you're at the sure. margin, yeah. Limited and more variable resources at those sort of edges translate directly to higher population variability in both space and time. Uh, and this has been documented in that study in the Florida Everglades, as well as bird species with body mass close to those sort of discontinuity gaps. Uh, those are papers from that range from 1999 all the way to 2009. So there's a few examples of that. So it's really neat. They call it a, like a zone of ecological instability. It's very interesting. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense too that the the species on the edges close to those gaps would mm-hmm. would see a lot of variability and uncertainty, right? And, Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, cool. and yeah, and so that you know that could relate to the regime shift sort of thing. If you start seeing uh, massive instability at sort of some of these margin some of these margin species, could be probably a first indicator that something is wrong. It's your classic canary in the coal mine. Very much so. Very much so. And so we'll move on finally to the last one, which is identification of monitoring targets. So, you know, they stated this before, but resources for monitoring programs are always limited, always variable, dependent upon grants, depending upon, you know, who's in political power at that time. There's not a constant stream of money for ecological monitoring. So you have to utilize what tools you've got and the discontinuity approach has a potential to reconcile the controversy around ecologically relevant monitoring based on like single species approaches. You know, there's a lot of criticism for what we might call charismatic megafauna, where, you know, mm. there's there's ecology monitoring and preservation programs focused just around one species, like a panda or something, you know, big and cool right. that we love. And there can be a lot of criticism of that because what about the rest of the ecosystem that that animal exists in? It it's all functionally important. So discontinuity analysis has the capacity to objectively identify those species that best capture ecological variability in ecosystems due to their location in the center of those body mass, body size aggregations, like we were talking about, not the margin ones, one, you know, the three centimeter <laughs> species, regardless right. of their designation right. as flagship, you know, charismatic, economically important, umbrella species, whatever. Building on this re- regime shift or early warning theory, these species can serve as effective sentinels or you know, canaries in the coal mine, like you said, of environmental change where monitoring tracks their patterns of variability at scales where human impacts in ecosystems are the most severe. So mm-hmm. they might also serve as harbingers of regime shifts through focused monitoring of their variability in abundance over time and across those body size and mass you know, ag- aggregation groups. So... Ecological management is always goal-driven and, you know, the complexity of ecosystems can make knowing where to start so unbelievably difficult. Um, And, you know, this discontinuity theory is not the uh, end-all be-all and, you know, probably not going to save the world or anything, but it is another tool in the toolbox like biodiversity inventories, like you know, everything else that we've sort of covered in this podcast. And that's a really neat way to show us where we can start building up ecological resilience within an ecosystem to prevent, you know, regime shifts and collapses and, and whatnot. It allows complexity to be quantified in another method. So, Very cool. Yeah, I think that's a, that paper in a nutshell. That's another great one, though. Go give that a read. I, that was, I pulled out those, you know, there are five sort of big management topics, but there's a lot more in there, particularly if you are someone who is, you know, in the field of conservation management. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I like it. Very yeah. Nice. Connor, would you like to uh, 
tell us about where you saw resilience in the news this resilience week. in the news dun, da, da, da. i feel like we need a news intro for mm-hmm. this segment <laughs> yeah we need to get a little more creative with my editing maybe i can find something <laughs> this just in tonight resilience <laughs> julie has another well. space article <laughs> Well, speaking of things just in, Mm. uh, just recently, uh, President Biden announced a a record amount of climate resilience funding. Oh, fantastic. uh, Will be given out. Uh, So this is a New York Times article by Christopher Flavel. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Essentially, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, will be giving $3.5 billion to states in order to prepare for disasters. So not simply disaster response, but taking... Uh, a more proactive approach. Fantastic. And this has had some increasing uh, interest and momentum over the years, but uh, this is the the most uh, that's, that's ever been provided for, uh, well, at least through this process for, for proactive approaches to mitigating disasters. Mm-hmm. And it's also separate from the infrastructure bill, which is currently making its way through Congress, which would right. also put tens of billions of dollars into climate resilience funding. And of course, neither of these numbers are in any way a very small chunk of change. But the article mentions that between 2005 and 2019, the government spent nearly half a trillion dollars on disaster assistance. So compared compare that $3.5 billion or even those tens of billions of dollars to $500 billion. Oh my God. You know, there's there's quite the gap there. And as of late, we've been seeing more expensive and more frequent disasters. According to the article, there were 22 disasters last year, so 2020, that caused at least $1 billion in damage last year. And mm-hmm. that is a record. And it isn't in this particular article, but I've, I've seen mention uh, before some other figures which essentially show the, the cost of disasters as well as the frequency of disasters have been continually going up over the past 30, 40 years. Yeah. And part of that is because we've been building our infrastructure in more and more vulnerable places. And part of that is due to climate change. And part of that is due to our, our management of our ecological resources. Uh, there's, there's a lot of factors Absolutely. essentially into how this is all going in. But I think it's an encouraging sign that people are starting to realize that this type of proactive mitigation strategy can um, really have an impact by saving lives in the the event of disaster, saving emotional distress from loss of housing and businesses and all this. And of course, uh, reducing the financial costs in the long run. It's the classic, you know, you're investing, you're, you're spending a little now to save a little, uh, save a lot later, right? Yeah, from the most monetarily pragmatic view, this, I can't imagine this won't save money, basically. Yes. It's always I, cheaper to prevent. Absolutely. I, I think that we're, we're in the process of reframing our mindset with regards to disasters from mm-hmm. a situation where... Um, you know, we, we, we go about our lives and, oh, no, a disaster hits and now it's recovery time to one. Well, we, we have to expect these great, big, large disasters. They're, they're going to come one way or another. So let's think about how we're going to deal with it now. Let's strengthen our infrastructure so that we can better mitigate those disasters that we can come and we, and we can recover quickly and 
uh, really strikes to the core of, of resilience theory where um, can can our our infrastructure can our social ecological system take the hit without changing its structure and function into uh, a state that we don't want it to be in can we you know manage these disasters so that we can you know continue living our, our daily lives and live live with these disasters instead of try to constantly get hit by the disasters yeah. rebuild get hit again rebuild yeah well and, <laughs> yeah and, and uh going back a little bit to that last paper i read this is we have now some tools in the toolbox where we can actually know what we want to prevent you know hundreds and or thousands or years you know years ago we did, you know obviously didn't have the tech that we have now now we can you know, through ecology and through meteorology and through climate science and through everything, we can know what, at least some of what we're trying to prevent, which is a huge step forward. We've got some tools. Yeah, that was a uh, encouraging headline to read <laughs> and pretty, um, I don't know about optimistic considering the, <laughs> considering the nature of the article, but sure. certainly necessary. Uh, Positive, yeah, yeah, necessary. So. yeah, yeah. Mine is so I mentioned space. I have a I have a little second article that I'm just going to mention in brief at the end. But my main article for today is another pretty positive um, article about sort of the way that we're starting to build some climate resilience into our you know modern American cities, and it's a Scientific American article, and it's called "Cities Pledge More Green Space to Combat Urban Heat." So four U.S. municipalities, Austin, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Seattle, were among sort of, I think it was something like 40, just a huge number of U.S. cities that have signed on to this. Um, this is by Daniel Cusick and was just published, you know, 10, 15 days ago. And basically, the world's largest cities have been, cut, you know, raising tree canopy and hard, hardening natural landscapes for decades often to the detriment of the urban poor, racial and ethnic minorities, and increasingly climate migrants. So 31 cities, including four from the United States, oh, there we go, that's what it is, not just U.S. cities, um, make, made commitments to uh, sort of reverse this trend under a new global compact called the Urban, uh, Nat urban Nature Declaration. This aims to reduce the heat island effect, which is the um, phenomenon of like dense... Uh, concrete-covered cities are always hotter than the surrounding uh, natural space, than tree-covered areas. Um, sure. Also, they hope to stem urban flooding and just generally improve living conditions by replacing these sort of lifeless, impervious concrete landscapes with shaded or watery sort of um, structures for these climate-stressed communities. Um, one of the goals is ensuring that 30 to 40% of the total built up surface area is turned into green space in these cities or permeable surface, something that allows water to, to go through after rain by 2030. Um, and the se second goal is these cities can meet sort of a fit for purpose green or blue space standard by ensuring that 70% of the residents of the city can walk or bike to a park or water feature within 15 minutes. So I like that this initiative, you know, it has clear climate goals with sort of the heat island effect and reducing uh, the impact of flooding, which we've, you know, I'm out in Colorado right now. We've been seeing quite a lot of flooding out here recently, sort of post Cameron Peak fire of last year. Now we get these heavy 
rainfalls and runoff and, you know, all of, you can just sort of see the destruction in its wake. So anything to sort of reduce the impact of flooding on civilians is incredible, but it has the added benefit, you know, clear mental health or physical health benefit of ensuring that at least 70% of residents can walk or bike to a park or water feature within 15 minutes of their home. I like these sort of multi-goal initiatives. Yeah, uh, that's uh, it's an interesting article. Yeah. I, um, yeah, it's it's definitely not a new topic in the, no. in the larger conversation. Uh, the urban heat effect, especially, has been talked about quite a bit. Uh, heck, the the University of Nebraska has a an urban forestry degree that you mm-hmm. can you can get right, and yeah. um, a lot of conversation about having trees in in urban areas. I wonder what they mean by. Well, park, I think, is a little self-descriptive, but I wonder what they mean by a water Water feature. Yeah, that could be very, uh, like a a storm drain runoff. So there needs to be a little, uh, some I hope there's some specificity in in this, uh, in these goals. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It does seem a little, I appreciate the the sentiment. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a little, it seems a little, um. I don't know, arm wavy, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. I also, uh, I just was thinking about this while you, while you were talking about this, that they're, you're talking about uh, often to the detriment increasingly of climate migrants, mm-hmm. which I thought's an, an interesting position and, and got me thinking a bit. I guess I would, mm, do you, do you think at this stage of the game, we could, you know, point to someone and say climate migrant? I do. Like, I do just be, this is not something that I know enough about where I, you know, I could just be spewing garbage right now, but I think that we are beginning to be able to, or maybe have been able to for quite a while because of the increased um, frequency and severity of huge natural disasters. So like we, you know, someone leaving their home and migrating because of a natural disaster, we wouldn't always consider that a climate migrant, right? Particularly in the past, natural disasters are a natural part of, you know, living in the world. But if they're getting so much more severe and frequent now, I think someone leaving as a result of like there was just that city in the past few days, a small town, I believe Greenville in California was completely destroyed by, you know, a massive forest fire. Now, every, I would consider everyone in that city who now obviously has to leave probably a climate migrant, you know, unless they stay and they rebuild. But for the, the period of time that they need to move to a new city... Uh, I don't know if if I think that it's there's a pretty clear connection between the severity of that burn and some of our management choices and climate choices. Sure. So I think we're getting there. It, that's a hard classification, though, of course, because you can't always draw direct lines. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a challenge in in trying to suss out the determining mm-hmm. factors for moving versus the contributing factors for moving. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But. Uh, yeah, I look forward to, yes, I look forward to seeing what work comes out of how people classify that and looking at ruling out other possible contributing factors uh, through some sort of analyses and seeing are more people migrating now and is that somehow related to, you know, a change in climate. Future work. Future work. Future work. And finally, to end on a lighter note, my last two, the last two podcasts, I talked about space articles. To me, 
I'm maybe I'm a space skeptic, a little bit goofy, but I saw this title in Scientific American. I don't know if it's related to resilience or not, but I just wanted to let it to update everyone on where the space conversation is currently going. This article is called Future Space Travel Might Require Mushrooms. <laughs> and it's an interview with a mycologist, Paul Stamets, discussing potential extraterrestrial uses of fungi, including terraforming planets, building human habitats, and providing psilocybin therapy to astronauts. And this is an article by Nick Hilden. I'm not going to dive into it at all. <laughs> I'm sure there's resilience in there somewhere with, we, you know, this, you know, building up of other places for humans to go live one day. But I just thought I, it was kind of funny. No, I, I think it's I think it's very fascinating. Yeah, uh, especially um, there's there's a bit in the article where he talks about um, generating soil using mm -hmm. fungi, fungi and yeah. then um, also essentially growing a structure using Absolutely. A fungi and that's some of his descriptions of just how strong these products made of fungus can be is really yeah. impressive uh the description where they're, they're trying to crush these blocks that they use the fungus to essentially grow and then uh trying to crush it with a, a hydraulic stainless steel press and they couldn't do it <laughs> that's, that's all so cool. very crazy actually broke the hydraulic press that's so cool <laughs> yeah i i mean mushroom i mean fungi are the the reason that life on earth essentially happens here and and we you know we we never give them enough credit so i think the if we are to to move off this planet at some point a portion of us mushrooms are very likely to be very important so if you're interested in this guy his name is paul stamets i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly he's got a book from 2005 called mycelium running how mushrooms can help save the world um, and he's currently working with NASA on some of this work. So I look forward to a fungi-based sci-fi book one day. That's my... Very impressive. That's what I hope someone will, will write for me. Well, when I saw the article, I, I saw his name. I was like, well, that sounds really familiar for some reason. Mm -hmm. And then I, I saw that he has a character named for him in Star Trek. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... I think I've seen I've seen an episode or two of that that series, and I do remember that he has to do with uh, like fungus and, and engineering stuff. So that, I thought that rad. was hilarious. Super cool. <laughs> this is the new section of the podcast. Is Julie finds a weird space article. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Well, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. It does indeed. Thank you so much for listening to WHRA, and we look forward to having you back soon.